One of the greater challenges that preachers face is when they come across passages that are extremely well-known. This is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible, from Luke 15, a story that's famously known as the prodigal son. And in fact, it's so famous that many people who have very little exposure to church or the Bible usually know what you mean when you say uh, they're like a prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful or extravagant uh, over useless things. Um, but the prodigal son story has become sort of a, a sign of, a, you know, this prototypical or sort of the, the great metaphor for what forgiveness looks like, because it's the story of a son who blows his father's money, comes back expecting to have to crawl back and lick his father's uh, uh, boots, but instead his father welcomes him, gives him sandals on his feet, and throws a great party. It's a challenge for us because we've heard it so often, yet sometimes the story that we've heard so often bears closer scrutiny, because it's popular for a deep reason, because it's a deep and moving story. I want to speak to you today, first of all, about how profoundly a shocking a story it really is when it talks to us about the forgiveness and love of God. Secondly, I want to talk to you about how it is that it invites us to see ourselves, uh, sometimes you know, for a whole life, but sometimes just in parts of our life, to see ourselves as either the elder or the younger child. And then lastly, to give us, I think, some advice and ways that we are to, uh, to deal with the prodigals among us, and how it is that we are called to be like that father rather than to be like the elder son. Just a, as a sort of a recap, though, one of the way, uh, reasons that this story is so powerful, and my first point that I want to make, is that when you listen closely to the story, as a modern Western person, it loses some of its impact. You need to sort of go back and imagine what it was like to hear this story for the first audience. Because Jesus, of course, is telling this story to a very traditional society full of people who are very uh, committed as Jewish uh, followers. And what that meant is to say is that you listen to this, a traditional society in which personal and family honor was deeply important. You listen to this story and you begin to realize it's, in fact, a story that's quite radical. Jesus doesn't just say the son goes off and comes back. He emphasizes certain things that are indicate or that indicate to the audience that this is something really scandalous going on. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had, traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Now we listen to this and we tell ourselves, well, you know, he blows his money, maybe he doesn't spend it wisely. But one of the things that Jesus' audience would have heard, first of all, is that it's not actually that odd or uncommon in that time to ask for a portion of your inheritance. You'd want to ask for it because maybe you're getting married and you want to set up a new household. Maybe you have a business venture. In other words, what you ask for is so that you can do something that sets you up in life and brings greater honor to your family. When Jesus' audience is listening, they're probably expecting this to happen, but instead what Jesus tells them is, is instead of investing it to bring greater honor to the family, what does this son do? He blows it. And he just doesn't blow it because he's made a mistake in a business deal. He blows it because he spends it on dissolute living. Later on, the elder son makes it clear what that was like. He spends it on prostitutes. So he is there busy dancing. He's spending it on who knows what. But that would have been an utterly shocking development for the respectable people Jesus is speaking to. It gets even worse. He began to be in need. So in verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. This is a Jewish audience, and Jesus is telling this story to scribes and Pharisees. These were sort of the elite of Jewish society at the time. They were the respectable upper crust. These were people who took their religion seriously. 
To be there and feeding pigs, hired out to a Gentile, would have been a truly great shock for them to hear. Even today, people who are observant Jewish people don't eat pork. And for a person who is strongly observant, don't want to be around an animal that's considered unclean. Jesus is describing not just a situation where the son makes a few mistakes and does a few things that are regrettable. He's describing a situation in which it is every parent's worst nightmare. Because this is a son who goes off, goes against everything the family believes in, brings shame and dishonor to the family, and wastes the family's resources. We look at what happens afterwards in which the son says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Everybody in the audience would have been saying, absolutely right, you're not worthy to be called that son. When Jesus tells all of these things, he's setting up the audience to have a father say, I disown you because you no longer have the right to be called my son, but instead it is a shocking reversal. And Jesus says, this man welcomes this child back, not just as a hired hand, but kills the fatted calf, makes a celebration, and says, my son who is lost is now found. Let's rejoice. Now we hear that and we may not even at this point think to ourselves, it's that radical. We've heard this story often enough, and of course, surprise, surprise, we've talked often throughout our career as Christians about how forgiving and merciful God is. But I want you to think for a moment about what it would have been like for you to be the elder son. For the person he is working hard day in and day out and feels that his father's not appreciated him, and instead of him making the son crawl, he welcomes him, throws a big party, and the elder son says, what? This is not fair. I want you to acknowledge, as I often do, the guy's got kind of a point. (laughs) I don't know if you grew up in the situation where you were the good daughter or the good son while you had another uh, sibling who was kind of the layabout troublemaker, right? You're the one who, instead of grumbling about doing the chores, just goes and does them. The one who babysits when uh, your parents have to run out for something. The one who's responsible, who goes off and gets their degree while your, uh, your sibling doesn't or you have a responsible job, or you settle down and you make something of your life and you often find a sibling coming to always borrow money from you or to come and do your laundry or something. Perhaps you're in that situation and you know what it's like. You feel that's just not fair. There's something wrong about this, that I've done this and I've worked hard and this person gets all of these breaks, the same breaks I do when they haven't worked for it. Of course, uh, it's very easy when you're a child, even if you're not the good son or good daughter, to believe it. It's very hard as a parent to have to uh, negotiate how often your children say, that's not fair, because they don't realize or they always believe that that unfairness is present in in, in the family dynamic. But if you haven't had that family situation, just think the times maybe you worked on a team project at work. You busted your hump, you worked really hard, you did a good job, but your layabout co-worker does hardly anything. The project's a success, and what happens? That guy gets as much praise as you do, and it's just not fair. How many times do we look around and realize that people who are elevated are there just because they're the boss's nephew as opposed to the person working hard? And it really grates against our sense of fairness. I think to appreciate how powerful a story this is is to appreciate how scandalous and seemingly unfair the father's attitude towards the younger son really is. This guy does not deserve to come back and to be called the son. The elder one does. That's what's so powerful about this story. The father doesn't care what human uh, ideas of fairness are all about. You know what he cares about? He cares about saving his children when they are broken and hurting and in need. The scandalous message of this story is that God is far more concerned with saving his children than he's concerned with human ideas of what's fair. 
At times where we stand as the elder brother, it is easy for us to say that is terrible, but I want you to imagine times where you have been the younger son in this situation, where you've messed something up and to realize that when you're in those situations, that what we're dealing with when we're dealing with our God is a God who cares most of all that we be saved, not caring most of all that people speak well of his fairness. You know, one of the things that I find really encouraging when I look at the ways that churches sometimes operate is how often you go around to churches and you find that in church basements uh, there are always 12-step groups that operate. You know, you uh, my last church, we had a proper building, and in the basement we'd have a regular AA group, and they're always founded on those different steps. And, and the first is that, you know, you, you give your life over to a higher power. You recognize you're powerless over this, this demon of alcohol. But there's other 12 steps that talk about, you know, gambling and, and others. One of the things that's so incredibly encouraging and why these often have successes where other places don't is because they're places where people who know they've messed up come and know that instead of being judged, they come and gather with other people and say, we together trust that there's someone above us who still loves us, even if we've torpedoed our marriage, we've burned our bridges, we've lost our job, there is somebody who cares about us and wants us back. Some of those powerful and beautiful stories I've ever heard are people who've been broken and found that instead of condemnation and shame, God heaps honor and love upon them, and that's what changes their life. One of the things that this story encourages us to do when we're in the position of the elder brother and stomping our feet and saying, it's not fair, I think one of the things we're called to do is to take a page from A.A.'s book. And one of those phrases that come out of that book is, there by the grace of God go I. To ask yourself, what would I do if I was broken? Would I run away from God, or would I find that I get the same kind of welcome that this prodigal son does? Our encouragement is to ask not only what it might be like, but if uh, we end up in that situation. I also think there's a challenge for us to ask, how is it that we treat those prodigals out in the world? And to ask whether we are accurate reflections of who Christ and his love is. One of the most challenging things about this story is that it asks us, if Jesus says this is a picture of what the family of God is like, it should ask or ask, make us ask hard questions about our own church. When people come here, do they look and they see, you know what, this church operates in just the way that this father's household operates. That the prodigals among us can find that when they come here, instead of being condemned, they find that they are lifted up and encouraged and put on a right road when they've been wandering. One of the greatest challenges that churches face is that there is an institutional kind of uh, a memory in people's lives in which many people sadly have been hurt by the church through the years. When perhaps they've made a mistake, when they've done something that has caused shame to them, when they come to the church instead of finding they're given the honor that God wants to give them and give them a dust off their feet and, and put them on the right path, they've been rejected and been told, you need to get your act together before you come through the doors. It's not how God's household operates, we're told. Instead, it is a place where those who are broken and hurting can find rest. This is not a country club for people who have their act together. What this is is a hospital that helps the sick and the hurting. We need to ask ourselves whether we are the kind of place where when a person we know has done wrong comes through the doors, they will find that they are loved and encouraged to come deeper into the household and learn the Father's ways. Now that may be something that we recognize we need to do. And after all, oftentimes we don't run across people who are notorious sinners, not like Dillinger is going to walk through the door and repent of his bank heists. But I suggest that one of the things that is most unconscious for us and most difficult for people like Anglicans to get over is that Anglicanism has a kind of whiff of uh, the upper crust. 
it is sometimes hard for people who don't come from that situation to bridge. I often read uh, church statistics and I often read about the sort of demographics and changes in religion. And one of the things that's consistently noted is that the Anglican Church, if you a map across Canada where the wealthiest areas, the most educated areas are, it's there that the heaviest concentrations of Anglicans are. There are exceptions. There are, of course, places like Center 454 down uh, town here in our own uh, community where we do help people who are truly broken. But the reality is, is you walk into an average Anglican church or Lutheran church, for the most part, what you will find are people who are well-educated, people who make higher than average income, and people who tend not to be blue-collar or poor. One of the greatest challenges the Anglican church I I have, I think, is not just to talk about how we care for those who are different than us, but to have some deep sense that people who are different from us are radically welcome. I remember uh, a few years ago, I ran across a quote from George Orwell. George Orwell is a famous English author, but he was a man who came from the upper crust. But he realized his privileges. He realized that he had a certain responsibility to those who didn't have his privileges. He became a socialist early in life. In fact, so much so he went and fought for the socialist cause in the Spanish Civil War. But one of the things he noticed is that although his commitment to the poor was very strong, he began to realize that uh, he needed more courage to speak out on their, on their behalf. He famously wrote Animal Farm to, to uh, criticize uh, socialism and communism in the Soviet Union, and so he was ostracized by many people who were former friends because he criticized the poor treatment of the peasants in Russia. But here's what really came out home to me. He also wrote a book called The Road to Wigan Pier. And that book was a, 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 a real focus on the working conditions of the poor in northern part of England. And here's an upper-class pers- class person who wanted to, to focus attention on the abominable conditions in which they live. And he wrote a, sort of a stir uh, to people to, to help out those who are in need. But this is what was arresting to me. Here, this upper-crust person with great intentions had to admit to himself, and this is what I remember him writing, I began to realize I thought poor people stink. <laughs> here's the thing. He was a person who was, yes, concerned about the poor, but he still ate good food. He... Uh, drank expensive liquor, he listened to sophisticated music, and then he goes amongst the working poor and they smell like stale cigarettes, they drink cheap liquor, they play music he couldn't stand. He had high-minded ideas about accepting them, but in fact, deeply bred into his bones as an upper-crust Englishman, he found it really, really hard to actually like them and welcome them. And he had his entire life to fight against that tendency. The courage for him to admit it is commendable. I think one of the things the Anglican Church needs to do, and each one of us needs to do, is to ask, how do we feel about people who are different than us? Is this a place where a person who attendantly, uh, has perhaps crude manners from what we think they're supposed to be, that they're still welcome? That a person maybe who doesn't always live the way we think they should, who doesn't smell the way we think they should, and who doesn't have the social grace we think they should, are they welcome here? And are they people that you want to be friends? I think this story challenges us not just to be people who welcome prodigal sons and daughters, but also people who overcome our own prejudices to say, even if you're not living by the bourgeois standards of Canadian society, you're still loved and made in the image of God just as much as I am. Here's the second thing that I think is really important about this and how we find ourselves in this story. One of the things that I recognize in this story is it is not just a story about the prodigal son, it is also a story about two sons who don't really believe that they're actually sons. I think that's a challenge that most of us actually feel. Do we really believe we're daughters and sons of the Most High God? I'll tell you what I mean by that. 
Do you notice that what the younger son does after he says, I don't want to go, I don't want to be part of this family, I want to go off and spend it. What does he say to himself? And what's the speech he rehearses before he comes to his father? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's a boy who takes his father's wealth, he takes everything his father owes him, and he spends it, and he comes back, and all he can think to himself is, now my father doesn't owe me anything. All of his obligations have been wiped clean. It's a clean slate. I might as well just be a stranger to this guy. So I'm coming and asking to be hired on as one of his hands. And yet the father says, that's not how I calculate things. I'm not weighing interest. I'm not weighing what you've earned. He doesn't even answer him. Do you notice after this big speech, the father doesn't say anything to the son? The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, get the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine. This is my son. He was dead and now he's alive, lost and now he's found. And is the elder son what he says? Something remarkably similar. He says, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even a young goat so I might celebrate with my friends. To see how the elder son sees things? I'm acting like a slave. I'm working hard. I'm putting all of this credit and honor onto the family. I'm spending uh, the time that I have on your farm well. I am earning the right to be called your son. And yet he is too scared ever to even ask for a young goat to have a party with his friends. Why? Because he doesn't really believe his father loves him and is generous. And what does the father say? He says, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Here's a guy living as a slave, not realizing that, in fact, he's a son. Both of these children need to realize the quality of their father is such that God does not say, did you honor me enough to be called my son? Did you spend the money wisely enough to be called my son? Did you work hard and sweat enough to be called my son? No, he says, you're my son, and that is the reason I love you. How easy is it for us when we walk through life to worry? Maybe we're the person who's the prodigal son and says, man, I've messed up. I'm really afraid to come to God. So often we run farthest away from God when we're most guilty, and yet the prodigal son's story says, no, that's the time when you need to trust and say, I really am God's daughter. I really am God's son. I will come boldly into his uh, sanctuary. I will boldly eat the bread and the wine that he has given to me because I am his daughter and his son and I'm going to trust that what he tells me is true. I will not have the mentality of a slave, the mentality of a true child of the Most High God. But when we are the elder son, we're punctilious and so afraid of making a mistake and living so safely that we're afraid God will cast us out of his family Look to this story and realize what the father says to the elder son. You are my son and you always have been my son. Anything you want is yours. Be bold and ask God for the things that you long for. Don't be afraid that you have to count every step and earn things. Rest in the knowledge that God loves you because you are his son or daughter, not because you have earned it. One of the greatest things that we can remind ourselves of is that we come through the door welcomed not because of what we've done or not done, but welcomed because God himself has pronounced that we are his daughters and sons. One of the greatest privileges I have as a minister in this church is when somebody brings their little tiny baby to me, and they come and say, I want my baby baptized, and this baby has not earned anything. They haven't gone off and spent their parents' money with prostitutes either. What have they done? 
nothing. Yet I hold them in my arms and I baptize them in God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I take with this thumb and dip it in oil and say, I anoint you with the sign of the cross to mark you as Christ's own forever. You are marked as Christ's own forever. Believe it. If I can say that to a baby who has done nothing, I can say it to you who I'm sure has done many things for the sake of the kingdom. Trust in what God says to you. When you are made a part of Christ's family, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Here's the last. I think this is a story primarily told about God and his love for his children, but I also think it's a story that we need to take to heart in the way that we deal with our own children. To you parents who are out there, the sad reality of it is, is that different periods and sometimes different levels of intensity, all of us have children who at times will be prodigals. Maybe you will be suffering with a two-year-old who refuses to do anything you tell her to do. And you tear out your hair and think, what am I going to do with this prodigal little kid of mine? But of course, you may also find that your child grows up and as an adult makes choices that are truly bad, that go off and end them up in a place that you wish they weren't at. And one of the things that's interesting about this story is, this is an image, the father is the image of our father, the God Most High. This is not a father who has failed at parenting, and yet both of his sons mess things up. Different ways, but both mess it up. One of the things that it should teach us is, is that, first of all, when you look at a child gone astray, make no assumptions about the quality of the parenting that went into it. I, through my ministry, have met many people who I think uh, are amazing because they tell me stories about a terrible upbringing, and yet they've grown up as moral, upstanding people despite their upbringing. Other times I've had parents who have cried on my shoulder to say, I don't know where my daughter is going or my son. And for all I can see, they've been excellent parents. It tells us something in this story to say, make no judgments or assumptions, even about your own self. But here's the more important thing, I think. When we look at this, what really amazes me about the attitude of the father towards his sons is that when that younger son comes and says to the father, I want my inheritance now, there's nothing in this story that says the father said no. What an amazing thing. Like, the father must have asked a couple questions, right? Like, well, what do you intend to do with this, my son? Oh, well, I, I got a lot of prostitutes. I heard they're really great out in uh, this country over here. I'm like, hmm, that might not be the best use of money, son. But what does the father do? He still gives it to him. And also, when the son hits rock bottom, the father doesn't say, oh, gosh, you've run out of drinking money. I'm going to send you a camel full of gold so you can get back at it. The father lets him go. He scans the horizon, he's looking, he's clearly waiting and hoping his son will come back. And he welcomes him, he doesn't shame him, he says, come kill the fatted calf, you're fully a, a son. I'm sure there was some challenging conversation that happened afterwards. But what did he do? He let his son make his own mistakes. And he turned him over to God's care. I think one of the things that we can do as parents is to say, whether it's the two-year-old stomping their feet or your 30-year-old who's making unwise life decisions, that part of what we're called to do is to trust that this child is not just my child, it's God's child. One of the most important things you can remind yourself is that God lends your children to you, but they really are his. And what that means is that when your child leaves or your child lives a way that you don't want them to live, to realize that God has given them free will. And that means that the best you can do at times is simply to say, I will love you and the door will be open and the table will be set and I hope you come back. But what I will commit to do is to pray with you, pray for you, as you make your own decisions and hope that God will work on your heart to start making them right again. Remember that as parents, we're not responsible for every decision our children make. What are we responsible for doing? Letting our children know that they remain our children when they make mistakes. That the door remains open and the table remains set because that is the example the Father gives for us.
So today, whether you're an elder son resenting the prodigalness of your siblings, or whether you're a prodigal son or daughter thinking to yourself, my gosh, I can never return home, take this story to heart. God's love is scandalously abundant, and he doesn't really care what people think of him. What he cares is that his children be made free. Trust in him. And when we come to the table a little later, come knowing that you haven't earned anything and you didn't have to. Come knowing that Christ has earned things for you and said, I don't call you a slave, I call you a friend and a fellow sibling and one of the sons and daughters of the Most High God.